Good evening, everyone. And thank you, Roy. Uh, in a week, whenever, as Roy says, royalty and future kings have been sharply in focus, it does seem appropriate that our title for this evening is Long Live the King, although I have to say that is purely coincidental rather than intentional. We set this uh, series at the beginning of the year when I, I must admit thoughts of royal weddings were not on the agenda, so to speak. And if you were here this morning, we, we started Samuel's story. Now, I know a number of you weren't here this evening, but we, we spent this morning looking at First Samuel chapters 1, 2, and 3, or, or just to sort of race through them. And this evening, we're going to race through chapters 8, 9, and 10. But this morning, we left him just as a young man. He had heard God speak to him four times during that historic sleepless night. And this evening, as we pick up the story in chapter 8, it's on page 278 of the Bibles in the pews. But we find, at this point in the story, he's now an old man. And so we've just rushed over his entire life, so to speak. Uh, But I'd really encourage you to sort of read the chapters in between if you get a chance this week. But he's now an old man, and so as it says in the very first verse, he has appointed his two sons, Joel and Abijah, to lead Israel. Now Samuel turned out to be, if you read those chapters you'll discover, he turned out to be an amazing leader. He's often seen as the greatest of all the judges. And therefore it's no surprise to discover that he appears in the Hebrews Hall of Faith, the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. But in a serious case of sort of deja vu, we discover that his sons don't exactly embrace the family values. Now you'll remember if you were here this morning that Eli's two sons who were priests were described as scoundrels. They didn't respect God. They were sexually promiscuous. Well, Samuel's boys were just as bad. It actually says, according to verse 3, that they were dishonest, that they accepted bribes, and that they perverted the course of justice. And we can only imagine that that must have broken Samuel's heart. Virtually everything we know and read about Samuel is positive. And yet morally and spiritually, his sons turn out to be a massive disappointment. His example, it seems, didn't rub off on them. His values and his commitment to God didn't influence his boys. Any more or any less than Eli's had. And you know, Christian parents, and I know there are a number here, Christian parents are called to set a good example. They are asked by God to teach their kids godly values. But Samuel's situation reminds us and proves that even if or when they do, there's no guarantee that their kids will embrace the faith or follow their lead. And I know many Christian parents who can identify with this dad here. They have done their best to model positive Christian parenting. Many Christian parents who have taken their God-given responsibilities very seriously and yet their kids have made choices to walk down and walk upon a path that is very different from the path that their parents hoped they would walk upon. And that breaks a mum or a dad's heart. But the danger is that sometimes a parent can end up blaming themselves And feel like a failure. 
and unhelpfully taking responsibility for the decisions that their kids have taken. A Christian parent is primarily responsible for his or her own spiritual walk. And ultimately, so are their kids. And sadly, despite Samuel's godly example, Joel and Abijah did not follow, to quote verse 3, to quote the text, the boys did not follow their dad's ways. And as a result, the elders of Israel come to Samuel and ask for a king. And I wonder if the two boys had been better leaders. If they had been like Samuel, would the request for a king have been shelved or simply delayed? We don't know, or do we? Now the request to say, if you look at verse 6, you'll notice that the request for a king really upset Samuel. But look at his response, because rather than voice off and immediately verbalize his frustration, he turns to God in prayer. And that is such a brilliant example again. And today I'm really just saying only a couple of things. But that is a brilliant example to pick up. Because how often do I, do we react badly in certain circumstances and regret what we say? I'm sure you have done that. If only we would take time to pray before responding. Then we might react better And save ourselves and others a lot of further heartache and mess. But the problem is that not every situation or occasion gives us that luxury to take time out to pray. Most of the situations that you face and you you will encounter this week actually requires an immediate response. There's no time to 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 walk away and pray, to count to ten. And what that does is that takes us back to a value that I have stressed before. And that is the importance of a consistent prayer life. A life that actually is characterized by regular prayer. And in Mark 9, and we have referred to this before, Jesus was able, it says, to bring release to a young demon-possessed boy. And the reason that Jesus had to do that was because his disciples couldn't. And away from the limelight, the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, why could we not drive the demon out? And here's how Jesus responds. This kind can, come, can only come out by prayer. And what's fascinating, if you read that, is that there's no record of Jesus praying. Jesus doesn't take time out on this occasion to pray. And the only explanation that I can find to that is that the reason Jesus doesn't need to take time out to pray at that particular moment is because his life, his entire life, was underpinned by a regular pattern of prayer. And therefore, whenever Jesus found himself in any situation, because his life was soaked in prayer, because he spent time alone with his Father, his inner life was resourced to the point that he could react appropriately every single time. And I think that's a challenge we all face. That no, we can't always step back and take those moments to pray whenever we're facing certain situations. But if our lives are characterized by prayer, then we can actually respond appropriately at any point in time. In Samuel's situation, he does have the luxury to take time out and pray. 
And as a result, what we discover is that he gets a glimpse of the bigger picture. He actually gains perspective. And he's able to hear God speak into his situation. But have a look at God's first comment to Samuel. Because it must have thrown him. God says, listen. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. And I sense that that was probably the last thing Samuel wanted to do. Yes, ignore them. Maybe even rebuke them, but listen to them. That probably wasn't what he was expecting. Which is exactly why praying into any situation is vital. Because sometimes how God asks us to respond is surprising. Because here, God says to Samuel, listen to them. And that must have surprised Samuel. So God says, listen, but then he affirms Samuel. And this is, this is brilliant because he affirms him by assuring Samuel, listen, the people's request or demand for a king, it's not a rejection of you, Samuel. It's not a rejection of you. Don't take it personally. Because actually, it's a rejection of me as their king. And that is what is so tragic about this chapter in their story. And according to verse 8, God actually tells Samuel that this latest rejection just follows a long line of them. It's not the first time. In fact, ever since God rescued the Israelites from slavery, this is what God says, ever since then, they've been repeatedly abandoning me. They've been constantly doing their own thing. Now what's worth pointing out is that wanting a king, and I've got to be careful in how I put this, but wanting a king was not necessarily the problem. In fact, God had actually mentioned the possibility earlier on in their story in Deuteronomy 17. God had given Moses explicit instructions regarding the kind of king that one day they should appoint. And so the people's desire for a king was at one level a very reasonable desire. The problem with their demand here in 1 Samuel 8 is twofold. To start with, their motive for wanting a king was totally wrong. It was so that, according to verses 5 and 20, if you just look at them, it was so that they would be just like all the other nations. And that was exactly what God didn't want for his people. God wanted his people and always wants his people to be different, to be set apart, to be distinctive, to be countercultural. But here, these people opt for compromise and conformity. We just want to be like everybody else, Samuel. And the second problem with their request was that it revealed a desire for human rather than divine leadership. They wanted a human monarch to take control. And that was just blatant rebellion and pure stupidity. Because why would you choose to look up to and rely on other human beings for ultimate leadership when you could have Almighty God in control of your life and destiny? Why would you do that? Why would you do that whenever this king had proved himself to be amazingly powerful, trustworthy, patient, loving, kind and protective? And the list of positive qualities are endless. Why, if that was the king you did have, would you look elsewhere? And it is a really good question. It's a question I often ask myself as I read this story. And although as we read back into it, it does seem like a bizarre choice. And it does seem strange that they pursued their demand. The truth is reality keeps repeating itself. Or history keeps repeating itself. Because we continue to live in a context where God's rule and God's reign 
is still rejected. And it's still ignored. And you're often left thinking, why? Why do people look to other human beings for ultimate leadership when they can look to God? Now, like the Israelites, we do need human leaders. It's not that we don't. We do need human leaders. And we're actually taught explicitly in the Bible to respect them and pray for them. But whenever God's ultimate leadership is forsaken and abandoned, that's when the problems do arise. That's when the wheels come off in a society. And even a quick glance at any news bulletin will provide enough evidence to verify that. The Israelites wanted a human king just to be like everybody else. Just because they wanted a human to be in control. And it looks like God here is actually encouraging Samuel to listen to their request. But then what God does is he issues a warning. He issues a warning to the people about what this involves, about what their their request entails. In other words, in verses 11 to 18, he says, listen, if you want a king, here's what comes with a package. And look down, verses 11 to 18, because here's what God says. The king, he'll take your sons. He'll draft them into war. He'll put them in chariots. He'll take your daughters to be his bakers, his cooks, and his beauty therapists. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards, and he'll confiscate them for his servants. He'll tax your harvests and vintage to support his extensive bureaucracy. He'll take your servants and the best of your livestock. Plus, and get this given their history. This is what God says. You will become his slaves. And surely warning bells were going, over, were going off all over the place at this stage. Given their history, to be told now that actually if they go ahead with their demand, they're going to end up being slaves. And then in verse 18, as God says, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief. You'd have thought that somebody would say, is that not what actually did happen to us in the past? The time we were in slavery in Egypt as a people, did we not cry out to God for relief? And then, if that's not enough, the final comment that God makes must have sent a shiver down everybody's spine. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And that must, surely that must have grabbed our attention. And yet, it seems it didn't. And so in verse 19 you read, But the people refused to listen to Samuel, who brought God's word. Just refused to listen to him. They said, No, we want a king. Then we will be like all the other nations. So here's the choice they faced. What's better? Is it better to be ruled by a righteous, just, kind, loving, gracious and merciful God, the king of the universe, or to be ruled by an imperfect human king, who will probably become oppressive and make your life miserable. What's better? And again, as you read it now, you think to yourself, it's it's like a no-brainer, and yet the people chose the latter. But why did they do that? Why? Does doing it our way honestly eclipse doing life God's way? Does the substandard temporary gain of living life on our terms and to our agenda really outweigh the extraordinary and eternal gain that living life God's way offers? And of course the answer is no. 
And yet it seemed back then the people were convinced the answer was yes. And so they just shut their ears to the voice of God. They just ignored the wisdom of God. And again, without laboring the point too much, history just keeps repeating itself. Because despite the ongoing wisdom, the ongoing guidance, the continuing direction and truth that is spoken and is still available via the word of God today, many people just say, no, we want to do life our way and therefore opt for a godless existence. And therefore, and without being again overly dramatic, it is important to stress that the long-term implications are potentially similar. There will come a day, according to Scripture, whenever it's going to be too late. And whenever God is not going to answer the cries for relief that will be sounded. And although that is unpopular teaching, I don't really feel at liberty to readjust it. And in verse 21, we read that Samuel then, and and this is an interesting bit, Samuel then goes on to repeat to God what the people have said to him. That's what it says in verse 21. Which when you think about it is quite strange because it implies that God didn't know. Which can't be true given who God is. And it's a bit like the dilemma that some people have regarding prayer. Why pray? Why pray whenever God already knows what you're going to say? Whenever God knows what you need, are you not just going over familiar ground? But the reason for Samuel sharing and the reason that we must pray is that it reveals and it expresses our need for God. God already knows what's going on in our lives, but the opportunity to communicate it nurtures intimacy and relationship. God doesn't need to hear us in order to be informed. But he delights to hear us and via the dialogue we can be transformed. So God doesn't need us to repeat things that he already knows. But actually we do. Because because through prayer we can be changed. And Samuel's relationship with God is therefore obviously vibrant. It's a two-way thing. The conversation flows. God speaks to Samuel but Samuel speaks to God. But then God tells Samuel, Samuel, I want you to give the people exactly what they want. I want you to give them a king. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that the world is divided into two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, okay, have it your way. And here in 1 Samuel, we find God letting the people have it their way. They want an earthly king, they get one. And sometimes God gives us what we want even though it proves painful for us and therefore we have got to be so careful what we ask for the people didn't just get a king as it turns out they got about 40 of them and most of them turned out to be a disaster and Benjamin Franklin once said if a man could have half his wishes he would double his troubles and I think it's fair to say that in in getting exactly what they wished for the Israelites more than double theirs. Now back to Deuteronomy 17 that I referred to earlier, because some people might be thinking, but hold hold on a wee minute, David. Did God not predict that this would happen? 
And did God not even set out, you just said it a moment ago, did God not even set out with Moses explicit instructions and criteria regarding the type of king that they should appoint? And that is exactly the point. God had spoken into this moment. God knew that this day would come. He was against the idea because he was their king. But God knew that the people would rebel for selfish reasons and would demand an earthly one. And so, if and when they insisted on one, God wanted to make sure that they made a good choice. And therefore, he gave Moses great advice regarding the kind of king that must be appointed. And the qualifications are listed in Deuteronomy 17, 15 to 20. I'm not going to turn to them now. I'm going to refer to one of them in a moment. But you see, this is where it all goes wrong. Because as we've just read in 1 Samuel 8 and 9, the people don't refer to God. The people don't say, okay, God, we want the king. Tell us the type of king you want us to appoint. As far as the people are concerned, they just want the king like everybody else. They don't want God as their king. They just want human leadership. There's no reference to God. And so the kind of king that they get is in some ways very different to the kind of king that God said they should appoint. But you know, even in spite of their poor choices, their blatant rebellion, and their refusal to listen to God's ways and God's warnings, God doesn't just call it a day. Surely at every right to God doesn't walk away. God doesn't abandon them once and for all. In fact, God continues with his people. And he actually instructs Samuel regarding the appointment of the first king. And not only does he instruct Samuel as to who the first king is, he empowers that first king by his spirit. And once again, we find ourselves confronted by the grace and mercy of God. Their decision to to demand a particular king might have been stupid, it was unwise, it was rebellious. But even in spite of all that, their situation is not hopeless. And thank God, even though today many continue to demand their own way, to continue to demand their own rule and reign in their lives, thank God there still is hope that we still live in days of grace, that God hasn't just abandoned us to our ways. And as we all know, the first king is Saul, and he's the son of Kish the Benjamite. And it says he's a handsome young man who's a good head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And whenever Samuel meets him, God confirms, this is the one, Samuel, this is the one. And so Samuel anoints him at the beginning of chapter 10 via oil and a kiss. And by verses 9 and 10 of that chapter, we read that God has changed Saul's heart. Made him into a completely new person. He's changed his heart and also the Spirit of God comes upon him in power. And so given the background and the the debate that has gone on regarding a king in Israel, all now looks good. Because via Samuel, God has appointed Saul and God has empowered him. And so in verse 24, whenever Saul is eventually revealed to the people, they shout, long live the king. But then a critically important moment occurs. It's in verse 25. Because Samuel explains to all the people, including Saul, 
the regulations of kingship, which takes us back to Deuteronomy 17. And one of the core qualities we find there, and this is in a sense really where I want to bring this to, one of the core qualities that we find there regarding a king was that he was to be a man of God's word. It's one of the key qualifications. He was to own a copy of God's word. He was to read it all the days of his life so that via reading God's word he would learn to revere God. And he was also to follow carefully all the words that God's word contained. But as time would tell, even though God had changed Saul's heart, even though the Spirit had empowered Saul, Saul chooses to ignore this. And he ends up being disastrously disobedient, prompting Samuel to utter these tragic words. Saul, because you have rejected, what have you rejected? The word of God. He has rejected you as king. And next Sunday morning we're going to discover the identity of his replacement. But as we finish this evening, and as we continue to work our way through this series, where we really are highlighting the importance of God's word, we're stressing the need for seeing God's word as the essential word. For me, I believe that we can take this advice that Moses was given and apply it to ourselves because it's not specific to kings. That we should immerse ourselves in God's word. That we should revere God through his word. And that we should become obedient to everything that we read in God's word. If only, if only the kings had made that choice. And it would have been very different. Let's pray. Father, once again this evening we are confronted just by the importance of your word. And by the importance of prayer. By the importance of responding to every situation in prayer. For those moments, God, whenever the pressure is on. And we may react in a certain way. I pray, God, you'd help us to talk to you. So that we might react differently. But God, help us also to be people who embrace your word and live your word. And I thank you for your instructions via Moses to kings that they were to be men of your word. And God, I pray that each one of us here this evening would be characterized as people of the book. People who read it daily. People who revere you through it. And people who are obedient to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.